0: Welcome to Dunn Dun. & Done. I'm Alicia, your hostess on this podcast journey, All Things Dominic Dunn, where nothing is linear and everything is connected. Thank you for joining me today as we continue our journey into Capote's Coterie, this time with an essential swan, the lovely lady who is most assuredly convinced herself that she is the archetype for Holly Golightly. This essential swan is Doris Lilly, celebrated author, columnist, and legend all her own. I think y'all are really going to love this story. Before we begin today's episode, I do have some thanks and praise in our spyglass here. Finding some names to shout out, huge love and thanks for Mark S., who delightfully explained my missed connection. We did make a correction to the Truman Capote Phoebe Pierce Freeland episode. Phoebe Pierce Freeland is not the granddaughter of Diana Freeland. Diana Freeland does have a granddaughter named Phoebe, but not the one in Truman Capote's life. But Mark S. totally rocks. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Mark, for providing me the connection of how they are related. Here's how the Phoebe Pierce Freeland and Diana Vreeland connection breaks down. Phoebe Pierce married, in 1952, Diane Vreeland's nephew, Dirk Van Riper Vreeland, meaning Diane's husband, Thomas Reed Vreeland, had a brother whose son, Dirk, married Phoebe in 1952. That makes Phoebe Pierce Vreeland the wife of Diane's nephew. Clearing that up for everybody, Got another name here in the spyglass, Lisa P. Thank you for your best email walking into spiderwebs. This is a great time to give a shout out to Julia Louis-Dreyfus, who, believe it or not, is my Delta Gamma sorority sister. She interviewed Jane Fonda not too long ago, and holy cats, you never know where Dominic Dunn is going to turn up. Jane Fonda, in this interview on Julia louis Dreyfus's new podcast, talked about... What Katherine Hepburn told Dominic Dunn about Jane Fonda, which is Jane Fonda has no soul. Thanks, Katherine Hepburn. Good Lord. Such a good story there. And one more shout out in our spyglass, Amy Beth Kay. Thank you for the awesome review on Apple Podcasts. And to answer your question, we do have a Dunn and Done Instagram and Facebook where you can share your photo or you can send it to me at doneanddone, and done. That's D-O-N-E and D-U-N-N-E at gmail.com, and I can make sure it gets out to the feed for everyone. I sure hope I have not missed anyone in that heap of love. Thanks again to you for your support, for listening, for telling your friends what a roller coaster ride of time warp connections we're working our way through, investigators. Today it is the tale of Doris Lilly legendary writer, and actually inspired to a life of writing by Truman Capote in the early 1950s, although they although they knew each other, Doris and Truman, much earlier than that. I will reiterate again, in my opinion, Breakfast at Tiffany's, one of the finest novellas ever, and most certainly the lens, the best lens of a particular aspect in New York City, throughout the World War II years. Breakfast at Tiffany's is a Ramona Clay of Truman Capote at this time, and there is one lady who firmly believes, very firmly, this is Doris Lilly, she thinks she is way more holly lightly than Carol Marcus ever would be. Doris Lilly is quoted within George Plimpton's Truman Capote book, Making sure her claim to this is very clear, Doris Lilly is. Doris Lilly says, There was a lot of wondering. Who was the original Holly Lightly. Pamela Drake and I were living in this brownstone walk-up on East 78th Street. Exactly the one in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Exactly. Truman used to come over all the time and watch me put on makeup before I went out. He was like a little boy. We used to go to the drugstore around the corner and get hamburgers. The man at the drugstore always said to me, how old is your little brother? Anyway, Truman was in that apartment a lot. There is an awful lot of me in Holly Golightly. There's much more of me than there is of Carol Marcus, who is now Carol Marcus Matthau, and a girl named B. Dabney, a painter. More of me than either of those two ladies I know. (laughs) Oh, my. So many names in that. So many sticky spiderweb stories behind all those names. Let's investigate. A lot in that tiny paragraph from Doris Lilly. We are gonna hear so much about her and from her in this episode. But let's go ahead and clear the deck of the two other women mentioned in there that we haven't talked about yet. Who are Pamela Drake and B. Dabney? First up, Pamela Drake. There's not a lot out there, but Pamela was a roommate to Doris Lilly on the Upper East Side. Pamela Drake has three IMDB credits. The first in 1944 with Nurse Civilian Uncredited. That role takes place in The Hitler Gang. It's going to take Pamela until 1952, but then comes another uncredited role in a film, The Belle of New York. The following year, 1953, brings Pamela Drake's last uncredited role in I Love Melvin. B. Dabney. What about her? Who's she? Who is this other girl Truman Capote is visiting in New York City in 1944? Roommates with Doris Lilly. A few interesting connections here. The main connection being, oh, what a small world we live in. B. Dabney was briefly engaged to George Plimpton. And then B. Dabney ends up leaving George Plimpton for a man that she meets at their engagement party. George Plimpton, legendary in literary and high society circles. A little bit about the brief history of B. Dapney. B. was born and raised in Dover, Massachusetts, one of three daughters born to Beatrice Howell and Frederick Lewis Dapney. B.'s parents are not only influential on her story, but her grandmother has quite an effect as well. Her grandmother, Gwendolyn Whistler-Parker, was a descendant of the artist James McNeil Whistler and was certainly a huge influence on B's her granddaughter's, artistic style. B Dabney will give some credit to her schooling as well. B attends the Charles River School and the Beaver Country Day School. Her childhood and adolescence are filled with a love of art and also dogs and ponies, and even a pet goose who goes by the name of Pompous Ass. B. Dabney really loves art. She will attend the School of the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston, and then will go on to attend the Beaux-Arts de Paris, which is when her friend and one-time fiancé, George Plimpton and Sardi Khan, launch the Paris Review. The Paris Review, the legendary magazine of Café Society, B Dabney will even do some sketches and drawings for the Paris review. B Dabney also really good looking. She's beautiful. She's photographed by many a photographer, gracing a number of covers in her day. B will marry twice, never to George Plimpton though. The first time B marries it is to one of those photographers, Gianni Pignati. Once B divorces, she will marry for a second time this time to Charles Francis Adams, who B had known as a friend for years, Charles Francis Adams was the chairman of the Raytheon Company, meaning lots of cash. B. Dabney spent her time doing a lot of philanthropy and a very well-lived life. B. dies at the age of 90 in Dover, Massachusetts on October the 7th, 2022, living her life as a wife, mother, artist, and friend. B. Dabney, very much an undercover kind of swan here. Doris Lilly will naturally give herself more credit to the Holly Golightly character, but don't forget that B. Dabney was there in that Upper East Side walk-up as well. Let's go ahead and move on to Doris Lily. And come on, you can kind of see the naming parallel. Doris, Lily, Holly, go lightly. You have the doe and the hoe and the lily and the lightly. There could be something to the threads of connection in that one. I can go there. Doris Lily will most certainly put herself there. And what a lady. She is a columnist and writer. She's legendary, though way before that in her day for dating everyone. Doris Lilly never marries, but she definitely carries on with the High Society International Café set. No one really knows when Doris Lilly was born sometime in December and maybe any year between 1922 and 1926. Definitely in that same segment of birth years of Truman Capote, and our man Nick, and many of the swans. Doris Lilly was born in South Pasadena, California, and will attend school in Santa Monica. In 1944, Doris Lilly will have a movie role. This is uncredited. (laughs) The role is as civilian in one of the movies mentioned within Holly Golightly's background at Breakfast at Tiffany's. And this one does ring into direct truth time. This next bit is from David Lotta in a piece called Will the Real Holly Go Lightly? Please stand up. Again, friends, all sources are linked at doneanddone.com. And David Lotta really does a great job summing up this bit, which we have talked about a little bit in relation to some other swans. But again, Doris Lilly, direct connection here from David Lotta. Early in Capote's novella, an unnamed narrator meets one of Holly's friends, a West Coast agent by the name of O.J. Berman. He tells the story of discovering a 15-year-old Holly at the Santa Anita racetrack in Los Angeles. She was involved with a jockey at the time, and despite thick glasses and an almost impenetrable oaky accent, he detected certain qualities that could have made her a star. It took us a year to smooth out that accent, Berman confides. How did we get it finally? We gave her French lessons. After she could imitate French, it wasn't so long that she could imitate English. We modeled her along the Margaret Sullivan type, but she could pitch some curves of her own. People were interested. Now, we know of the William Hayward and Margaret Sullivan tie-in with Slim Hawks. Like, it is all connected, but this movie is mentioned. David Lott is going to continue. Berman, O.J. Berman, arranges her, Holly, to test for an upcoming movie. The story of Dr. Wassel, starring Gary Cooper and directed by Cecil B. DeMille. The day before she's due to audition, Berman gets a phone call from Holly saying she's in New York and has no intention of returning. This is one of the principal clues towards identifying the real Holly. There actually was a story of Dr. Wassel with Cooper and DeMille, which was released in 1944. Gerald Clark, in his Capote, A Biography, released in 1988, ventures that this was a reference to Doris Lilly, described as a, quote, tall, pretty, streak, blonde, starlet, unquote. And no doubt, Doris Lilly did have quite a time in Hollywood. Her dating history is legendary, very wide, very long. Doris Lilly even dated future president Ronald Reagan after his divorce from Jane Wyman and before Ronald Reagan marries Nancy Davis Goddaughter to Ala Nazimova. It really does all come together, friends. Ronald Reagan liked Doris Lilly enough to write her some love letters during their time together, which, according to Doris Lilly, lasted about three years. Those two letters were auctioned at Sotheby's in 1988 by Doris Lilly. Helpfully, Malcolm Forbes bought those letters for $4,400 and gives them to Nancy Reagan. Nancy Reagan, also a very close bosom friend of Dominic Dunn. We haven't even made it to the Nancy Reagan spiderwebs yet, although we will. Back to Doris Lilly. So Truman Capote is visiting her in New York City when Doris arrives there, enough to make her some part of his writing even more interesting that Doris Lilly visits Truman Capote in the mid-1940s while Truman is living with his mother, Lily May Falk, also known as Nina, and Truman's stepfather, Joe Capote. And this bit from Doris Lilly, again from George Plimpton's Truman Capote, provides what I think is just a really interesting insight into Truman at this particular time. From Doris Lilly about... Truman in that environment. Very sweet. Nina, his mother, really crazy, wonderful Southern woman, you know the kind. She had that apartment on 87th Street and Park. Really too far uptown, kind of the boondocks, but that house sparkled. That floor was waxed twice a week. I mean clean. You have no idea how clean that apartment was. Nina washed her hair every single day, She had no hair at all, and it was so very, very fine. Truman had fine hair, you know. Nina's hair was all wispy. It almost wasn't even hair because she washed it so much. She was small, diminutive, and had a southern voice. She used to talk like that and cooked. We used to have wonderful dinners up there. I remember Carson McCullers. The reason I remember Carson McCullers is that I would say, who's that lady drinking that dark brown drink? She drank. Oy, oy, oy. Bourbon, I guess. Black, it was so dark. A great glass of straight bourbon. People who are heavy drinkers drink very slowly. She took a little sip and another little sip. You think they're never going to drink it, and then by the time you turn around again, they finished it. There were a lot of other writers. Jim Agee, I remember meeting him. Anyway, Nina would make the most luscious, incredibly delicious, unbelievable buffet suppers that I have ever had in my whole living life, southern food that she would cook herself. The Capotes never seemed to be without money. They didn't have any, as I found out later, but they didn't look like they didn't. Joe worked hard, and Truman would sit in the kitchen at night and type. He had a tiny little typewriter. She complained, Nina, about the noise. He typed with big margins because then he would have more pages, you see. He liked big type and he made big margins. That way, he'd get more pages faster. Doris and Truman. Whoa, they know each other. What a description there. Now, I want to move a little further down into Truman Capote's years here. I want to take us to 1948. Truman Capote... After a few years in a writing program, and still traveling around a bit. At this point, he was still living with Nina, his mother. But here in 1948, Truman is going to take his own place. Again, about time. He's 24 by now. Probably the time to make it happen. And a few folks talk about this particular time, including our girl Doris Lilly, I want to go ahead and just read a few of these observations again from George Plimpton's Truman Capote. This is from Eleanor Freed. He hung his hat at 1060 Park Avenue for a time, but it was Nina's apartment. His room had a great big bed and the usual reasonable chest of drawers, all very clean and neat and nice, but it wasn't Truman. This is from Leo Lerman. One middle of the night, there was a great clattering up the steps where we were living and there was Truman with his enormously long scarf wailing away as he came up the steps banging at the door. He said that Nina, his mother, had really gone berserk and thrown all these letters from Newton Arvin out and so forth and so on. Newton Arvin was one of Truman's earlier lovers before he met Jack Dunphy Leah Lerman continues about those letters that were thrown out by Nina. Dozens and dozens and dozens, he says. She'd thrown them out the window and he'd gone down into the street and collected them. Would I keep them for him? To the best of my knowledge, they're still in a little trunk sitting in my bedroom. So Nina and Truman have gotten to a little bit of a fight. Truman again, 24. He has had some early success with Miriam. Other Voices, Other Rooms has now been published back in 47. Doris Lilly will say this about Truman's apartment. Truman moved and had a little apartment, a walk-up on 2nd Avenue. He was living with a young man named Johnny Nicholson, who had the Cafe Nicholson and still does. Nice fellow, couldn't be nicer. The apartment was decorated in battleship gray and purple and black. The reason I know that is, Is when I finally got an apartment at 952 Fifth Avenue. I decorated it in battleship gray and purple and black. Salvador Dali came in and said, My God, this is like a funeral. I love it. (laughs) So all this time, Doris Lilly is doing her thing. She's dating, she's flighting about, and this bit is really where it gets interesting. Truman Capote, after this time period, does encourage. Doris Lilly to become a writer, which Doris Lilly does prolifically. Another quote here from Doris Lilly about this particular change in her fates. Doris Lilly says, Truman worked very slow and his handwriting. My original manuscript with his corrections and suggestions of how to marry a millionaire is at Boston University, where they have a Doris Lilly archive. They have that manuscript with his teeny weeny spidery handwriting. Truman had said, Why don't you write a book? I said, I can't write. Of course, you can write. You wrote to me when I was at Yaddo very funny letters, Doris. Really funny. I enjoyed them. I let everybody read them. You can write. I said, I can't write. He said, Write. I'll help you. I said, What will I write about? And Truman says, write about what you know. Always write about what you know about. Don't write a book on how to care for your poodle. You don't have a poodle. Write about what you know about. I said, I don't know about anything. And he said, yes, you do. Every time I look at the paper, I see Doris Lilly is with a Whitney, an aster of Vanderbilt. Write about a rich man. Write about how to marry a millionaire. Every woman will want to read it. And I said, do you think I dare? He gave the book to Bennett Cerf, who turned it down. After it became a success, Bennett Surf said, I'm the man who turned down How to Marry a Millionaire. And dare she did, Doris Lilly. How to Marry a Millionaire is the first release from Doris Lilly in 1951. How to Marry a Millionaire is titled the same as the 1953 film starring Marilyn Monroe, However, that 1953 film is not the same premise of Doris Lilly's book at all. I've got a great description about Doris Lilly's How to Marry a Millionaire here from Abe Books. Doris Lilly's How to Marry a Millionaire is described as a frank and hilarious autobiography by a woman who was, quote, graced with more good looks than most, unquote, and set out after a disappointing career as a Hollywood starlet to realize a dream that, it says here, many girls share, that being to meet a millionaire and lead the sleek, glamorous life of a cafe society celebrity. The author was a socialite and high society gossip columnist who wrote for numerous publications, notably the New York Post from 1968 to 1978 she was also one of several women who claimed they had been the model for Holly Lightly in Truman Capote's Breakfast at Tiffany's. The similarity of the title of this book, Her First, to that of the 1953 20th Century Fox musical film How to Marry a Millionaire, has led some people to carelessly assume that the movie was an adaptation of her book, but I'm here to tell you it ain't so. The film's uncredited sources were two plays, one by Zoe Akins, the other by Dale Eunson and Catherine Albert. So Doris Lilly, encouraged by Truman Capote to write about the things she knows, her book How to Marry a Millionaire is going to give Doris Lilly a start for sure. Again, she'll be a prolific writer, newspaper columnist, many writing credits throughout her life. She's big time connected into the writing world and the high society world. Let's see. She is a columnist for the New York Post for about a decade from 1968 to 1978. She will write for the New York Daily Mirror as well. In 1970, Doris Lilly pens another book, a favorite around here. 1970, Doris brings us those fabulous Greeks, Onassis, Nearkos, and Levinos. In 1977, with Robin Moore, Doris Lilly co authors another book, Glamour Girl. And 1984 will bring an updated version of How to Marry a Millionaire. This one is called How to Meet a Billionaire. As Doris Lilly says, quote, A million dollars isn't much money these days. You can't even get a decent house for that. Unquote. Yeah, that was 1984, friends. <laughs> Other writing credits of Doris Lilly include beauty editor of Town & Country. She was also a contributor to Avenue, Cosmopolitan, Ladies Home Journal, and McCall's. Not only a writer, though, Doris Lilly is also a commentator on WPIX and made her fair share of appearances as a guest on numerous panel shows, as well as the Merv Griffin Show. Quite a life, Doris Lilly. She's really well known in her day. And she does give herself the credit for being Holly Golightly. I mean, and I can kind of understand it. There is something to Holly Golightly who is attaining to be in a certain kind of set within her wartime New York. But the Holly Golightly story ends with our reader never really knowing what happened to Holly Golightly. We have talked in Capote's Coterie about a number of women who more than likely make a composite of Holly Lightly in fiction form. We've seen so far bits of Lily May Falk, Nina, Truman's mother. We have seen bits of Carol Marcus, Slim Keith, CZ Guest, now Doris Lilly too. There are hints of so many others. It's really in the whispers in that novella that you get these nuances of Truman Capote's swans. Remember, Truman Meets Babe, late 1954. Breakfast at Tiffany's is released in 58. And when Breakfast at Tiffany's is published in 58, all of the women in Truman Capote's life think Holly Golightly is them. (laughs) This is quite a difference. Think about it from the reaction of all those swans after the release of those chapters of Answered Prayers. No one claims to be anyone in Answered Prayers, but they are battling over, of course, they're all Holly Golightly in Breakfast at Tiffany's. Who does Truman Capote say that Holly Golightly is? In 1968, Truman provides a legendary story in Playboy magazine, about Holly Golightly actually being a German immigrant he met when they lived in the same brownstone in the Upper East Side. Possibly. Few other people have a few other ideas. This is a glorious little spider web here. James A. Michener, the Tales of the South Pacific novelist, among others, including what Dominic Dunn's big television hit in the early 1960s with James A. Michener's Adventures in Paradise. James Michener believes he knows who the real model is for Holly Golightly. This unnamed woman James Michener describes in Lawrence Grobel's Conversations with Capote as, quote, "...a stunning would-be starlet, singer, actress, tour from the mines of Montana." She had a minimum talent, a maximum beauty, and a rowdy sense of humor. Also, she was six feet, two inches tall, half a head taller than I, and a head and a half taller than Truman. Apparently, between Truman Capote and James Michener, there was a bit of a tussle for the affections of this unnamed lady, who seemed to end up liking Truman Capote a little bit better, leaving James Michener to write... They made a stunning pair, the statuesque miner's daughter soaring above the heavens, this rotund little gnome dancing along beside her. Not to be outdone, there is a, you can't make it up, a Bonnie Golightly that will end up suing Truman Capote for using her as the namesake of Holly Lightly. Eight hundred thousand dollars is the cost of the damages that Bonnie Go Lightly wants, but this suit doesn't go anywhere. I mean, come on, Truman and Bonnie Go Lightly do not know each other. A little bit frivolous here, but it does make for a terrific spiderweb in our land of it's all connected. Truman Capote says about this Bonnie Go Lightly business: "It's ridiculous for her to claim she is my Holly." I understand she's a large girl, nearly 40 years old. Why, it's sort of like Joan Crawford saying she's Lolita. Good Lord, friends, it might not be linear, but guess who is a close friend and neighbor of Joan Crawford? The neighbor of Joan Crawford, Doris Lilly. Continuing that bit of a roller coaster thread, my Patreon folks, stay tuned for this week's Dun Drop on the Patreon feed. We are going to talk about Joan Crawford and Doris Lilly in that follow-up. Doris Lilly, after a life filled with oh-so-much on her own terms, passes away in October of 1991 in Manhattan at the age of 69. Doris Lilly once concedes that her columns were sometimes silly and the people that she wrote about were sometimes shallow. But she will continue... They're pleasant and they smell good and they eat well and drink good wines and that's all right. There are a few other choice quotes here from Doris herself. I, again, maybe being part of Holly. <laughs> Doris Lily says, "It's intoxicating for a man to be waited on." Combine this with very very skillful sex and that will get them another favorite here. Men who wear turtleneck sweaters look like turtles. <laughs> millionaires are marrying their secretaries because they're so busy at making money they haven't time to see other girls i think this last one is my particular favorite quote from doris Lilly. if it were true that money grew on trees all my friends would be married to apes oh doris Lilly, what a ride everything is connected even though it might not be linear Investigators, we are going to be back next Monday, your next Dunday, with another essential swan. This one a little bit more treacherous than some of the others. In the meantime, you can get so much more to your investigation over at patreon.com slash done and done. If you'd like to show a little support to the podcast and get some goodies back your way, our done Drop again this week at the end of this episode will concern Joan Crawford, Back this past week on Patreon, we dropped an amazing Not Done Yet about a particular April day in the 1955 life of Truman Capote and Marilyn Monroe. So delicious that one. And coming up this week on Not Done Yet, we have a whole wonderful spiderweb About that time, our man Dominic caught up with his friend, the movie version of Holly Lightly, one Miss Audrey Hepburn. It is a roller coaster of all the things, friends. Thank you, thank you so much for listening and your support in all of the ways. For tuning in, for telling your friends, for your support on Patreon, for your emails, for your ratings and reviews too. Y'all do know how to make this gal feel like a million bucks. Sending all the good your way and until we meet again, stay curious and keep on investigating. Thanks for listening to the Dun Done & Done Podcast, a Hemlock Creatives production. You can email us at doneanddone@gmail.com. at gmail.com. You can follow us on Instagram at Podcast. For further information about our episodes or sources, you can find us online at www.doneanddone.com. See you next week, friends.